This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Ryan T. Anderson is the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is an institute, a think tank, devoted to the intersection between Christian morality and issues of public policy. Prior to his role at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Dr. Anderson, who earned his PhD from the University of Notre Dame, served as the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. His research has been cited by the United States Supreme Court. His scholarship has made significant contributions on the issues of marriage, religious freedom, and sexuality, among others. His most recent book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, was the topic of a previous episode of Thinking in Public. But today, we'll be talking about a range of issues. Ryan Anderson, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Well, I'm really glad to have this conversation, and I think there there are some really interesting questions we can get into. Uh, mm. The first of them really occasioned by the fact that you are now the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, that's a part of the uh, the vast array of, uh, of think tanks and similar organizations uh, in the city of Washington, D.C. And I think as uh, as listeners to Thinking in Public try to understand the world around us, I think that very uh, that very compound think tank is uh, something that plays an outsized role uh, in American public life and intellectual life. So let's just kind of trace the history, and then we'll talk about what the Ethics and Public Policy Center actually does. Yeah, that that sounds great to me. Um, so EBBC, when we were started in uh, 1976, uh, so the bicentennial year, uh, my old institution, I used to be at the Heritage Foundation, it was started in 73. Um, and there, there are several, you know, center-right think tanks that start in the 70s. Um, EPBC was the only one, to my knowledge, that was explicitly Judeo-Christian, right? Right up right. in front of what, you know, the DNA is of the organization is that we're explicitly pro-Bible and we're pro-America. And we right. think those two things have something to say to each other, right? We, th- we think there's something about um, a, a Christian influence uh, to America, uh, not that we're a Christian nation in the way some people might misconstrue what I'm saying there, but also not that we are a secularist. Uh, right. Nation. And there is no honest explanation for the culture of the United States of America, its systems and laws and constitutional government, other than a commitment to uh, at least uh, a, a Christian understanding of reality and uh, humanity, looking back at the uh, the founding of this nation. But let me push back a little bit further. So if, if we were to go back into uh, the 19th century, no one would know what a think tank was. Right. By the time you get to the end of the 20th century, the left and the right and virtually all points in between have think tanks. And so I, I want to offer a thesis and then ask you to respond to it. My, my thesis is that uh, the think tanks became necessary with the, the vast explosion in policy uh, that took place uh, in the 20th century, both in Europe and in the United States, and that policy had to come from somewhere. And so uh, the ideas and actual po- policy proposals uh, often came out of these organizations. Uh, I think the most interesting ones, by the way, are in Britain and in the United States that, that were called think tanks. Is that pretty much how this got started? I, I think that's largely accurate, is that you know as you had... Um, one, the rise of the administrative state. Right. So you need more Policy. and more experts doing that. Right. But then also as you had, you know, more and more legislation, right? right? The New Deal, the Great Society, you needed experts to staff that. 
And so there's almost something, some of the think tanks are kind of like revolving doors of an administration would go into office. And then when they were no longer in power, they would spend four years at a think tank and then go back in office and then four years back. And I had a bunch of old colleagues at Heritage who, you know, they decamped, went, served the country in the Trump administration. And now they're, you know, going back to Heritage or they're going to other similar institutions. Now, I'm going to argue uh, in a few moments that the Trump administration was something of an anomaly uh, 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 to the established pattern. But, uh, you know, it was the left that really pioneered the think tank, not the right. And and so you had the rise of uh, organizations, I guess, in the United States. The one that people might think of the most would be the Brookings Institution. And uh, Brookings really was uh, kind of an artifact of the vast expansion of government in the administrative state. And uh, I think what people, even whether liberals or conservatives in America today, I think few of them understand that much of the legislation that eventually gets considered and uh, and ultimately adopted by Congress doesn't originate in some congressional office. It originates in a think tank, uh, which is usually a nonprofit institution that has a a very clear political identity. And I think that's true on a, on a couple of levels. I mean, sometimes like this, the initial concept, yep. the, the idea behind the legislation will be something that was cooked up by a think tank fellow somewhere. Right. Sometimes the first draft of the actual legislation is written by a think tank fellow yep. somewhere who then shops around to different Senate offices or House offices to find the sponsor. And then a lot of the defense of that legislation is picked up by think tanks. So, so at, you know, almost those yeah, three different point. levels of, yeah, you know, yeah. the initial concepts, the actual legislative text, and then the public, um, you know, shaping the public debate surrounding that text. Uh, these institutions play an important role in a kind of American democracy in right. helping think through what should our laws be, um, which also means you can't sit out that debate, right? You can't Absolutely. be on the sidelines because it's not as if, well, you know, uh, if we didn't do our part, the other side would stop doing there. No, Brookings would still be here. The Center for American Progress, like right. these are going to be in existence. And so the question for conservatives and the question for biblically orthodox believers is, mm-hmm. are we going to be participants in yeah. that discussion? Yes or no? Well, as we're having this conversation, the Biden administration is within its first 100 days. And uh it has been strikingly successful in political terms in uh, achieving many of its stated goals, even more than the candidate appears to have thought possible. Um, and I would argue that a lot of that has to do with the fact that they're not coming up with anything like the uh, American Rescue Act, as they called it. Uh, it was already largely shaped out by the Center for American Progress, which I think right now is probably the most dominant think tank in the background of the Biden administration. Uh, so much so that uh, Nina Tandon, who was the uh, head of, or I guess still is the head of the uh, Center for American Progress, was uh, tapped to be the head of the uh, Office of Management and Budget, a, a failed nomination, but nonetheless, symbolic of the fact that that, uh, that one organization's at the center of producing policy. And, and, you know, just in recent days, there's been conversation about a $3 trillion infrastructure bill that the uh, Biden administration is going to be proposing. Well, they haven't had time to come up with a $3 trillion uh, legislative package. That existed before there was a Biden nomination. Yep, that's exactly right. And this is what's important for you know most of our listeners and viewers, because I, my, my guess is that they aren't Biden supporters. That right. stuff is happening now right. to prepare right. for 2024. 
Yep. Right now, the, 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 the campaign for 2024 started yeah. this past November. The campaign right? of ideas for sure. Well, I think the campaign for ideas and I think the jockeying for position, I think you've already seen different public figures jockeying for position to be the the candidate. Uh, And that means we need to be playing that long game. We need to be realizing that we are shifting Overton windows one way or the other in terms of what is plausible, what is possible. So the uh, the think tank as a British and American institution was really pioneered by the left on both sides of the Atlantic. And, uh, and, and that had to do with the fact that the left already dominated in the academic culture. And so these were policy people that kind of stepped in and out of academia, in and out of government. But they had extraordinary uh, cohesiveness and, uh, and indeed uh, comprehensiveness in, in, in their plans. The Brookings Institution was kind of famous for having a plan for everything. And if they didn't have a plan for something, they could come up with it in 90 days. That was just kind of the, 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 the legend of the Brookings Institution. And, and it had such intellectual authority that if Brookings was put on something, say, in the last half of the 20th century, then especially on the left, well, okay, then this is this is our policy. This is us. But I became a, 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 a teenage conservative in the United States in the 1970s and uh, really trying to get the lay of the land. And uh, the, uh, the conservative movement in the United States and then the conservative movement in Britain had periodicals. We had National Review. We had, we had similar kinds of uh, institutions. But it was the development of conservative think tanks that really changed the equation. And it was seen, first of all, in Great Britain, uh, where uh, conservative think tanks, and one in particular, really became associated with Margaret Thatcher, uh, developing the ideas that became known as Thatcherism and the recovery of the the British economy and uh, a new assertiveness of uh, of Britain on the world stage. And at the same time, um, just to fast forward, when Ronald Reagan, on January the 20th of 1981, takes the oath of office, he already has the famous notebooks from the Heritage Foundation that yeah. not only had policies, but, but 1,400, I think it was, staffers, you know, mapped out. Uh, that's something that no conservative uh, in the United States had ever had before. Yeah, it was, um, I'm trying to remember the, the exact name, The Mandate for Leadership. That, right. that, that's right. That was the book. Um, and back when I had Heritage, there were certain bookshelves that were just full of, you know, yep. the 1980s edition, 1982, mm-hmm. 1984. And they were big, thick books. And it had all the various policy proposals. And for each policy proposal, there was a matching piece of legislation that embodied right. the policy. And, and then at a certain point, they started creating the kind of like um, personnel handbooks. And I know some of my former colleagues at Heritage um, you know, they were working on the transition team, identifying, you know, who should be staffing uh, the Trump administration and trying to identify, you know, serious conservatives who are also um, both committed to the principles and right. had the right expertise, because it really does require right. a certain amount of expertise to run various agencies. Um, it, it certainly does. And having that lack of expertise is disastrous, as uh, as, as administrations of both parties have found. Yes, um, but the dependence upon these think tanks is huge. By the way, I, I did not mean to mention this, but it, in one of the kind of hilarious moments in which think tank Washington shows up and no one knows what just happened, uh, I'm thinking of the famous comment or that was infamous that was made by then Republican nominee Mitt Romney when he was asked about uh, his appointment of women in a prospective Romney administration. And he said, I have notebooks of women, you know, to appoint. And people made fun of that. Uh, but actually, he had notebooks, uh, and, and, and that, that's what all these nominees have. Just in, in anticipation of the election, they all have these vast notebooks 
for the the thousands of appointed positions. And so, I mean, it was a it was politically a stupid statement to make, but it was actually a statement of fact. And uh, the reality is Barack Obama had notebooks, too. He just didn't talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> he was a better politician in that respect. Uh, he understood that that uh, you know having the notebooks and talking about the notebooks are politically two different things. Things, yes. But yeah. uh, but no administration, given the size of the administrative state, I mean, you're looking at uh, at well over a thousand Senate confirmation positions now, uh, and, and you understand that n- no one can be elected president of the United States and walk in and have an administration within two years without someone doing all that background work. And and here's the the question I want to pose to you. Why is it that the parties don't do that? That's what the parties did in the early 20th century. Why did the think tanks take over what the political parties used to do? That, that is a question above my pay grade. I mean, I, I, I can't even, you know, give you a guess as to that answer. Um, the, actually, I, I will give you a guess. And, and I think part okay. of it could be that the, the think tank uh, was committed to an ideology, whereas the party might have been more committed to electoral yeah. success. No, that's so exactly it. The think yeah. tanks were trying to push the party yeah. right. in the right direction, given the belief system. And I'm not right. using ideology as like a smear. I'm just saying everyone has sure. an ideology. And right. I think I can just you know speak from experience at Heritage. Heritage was trying to push the Republican Party in a certain direction. And sometimes um, the priorities and the values of the party and the priorities and the values of the movement might be at odds. Uh, yeah, and that's going to be true for EPPC. You know, yeah. we have a certain ideology, again, not in a pejorative sense, but, you know, we want to see the Republican Party move in our direction. We want to put right. pressure on the party to move it in our direction. So, so I don't know historically if that's the reason why, you know, the, 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 the think tanks started doing things that the party used to. But I know today in practice, that's how it works. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And I think looking at Britain first, uh, because these things happened in many ways in Britain first, uh, given their system of government and a parliamentary government in which a prime minister has to put together an entire government, mm-hmm. uh, you know, upon taking office. Uh, I, I think it was a division of labor, just as you say, where the party became the, the assigned to uh, win elections. Yep. And uh, the uh, the think tanks uh, sought to win ideas. And, uh, and so even... Even in that division of labor, many of the campaign themes and slogans and arguments don't emerge from the parties anymore. They emerge from the think tanks that have uh, just in, in incredible access uh, to the candidates and, uh, and the candidates are dependent upon them. Uh, yeah. On the right, let's talk about the constellation. So, uh, you know, the Heritage wasn't the first think tank. It was just the first think tank to have that kind of influence, right? Yeah, I mean, so the, the story that Ed Fulner, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, the past president of Heritage, would always tell us is that, you know, Heritage started as a kind of breakaway from AEI uh, because there was a big vote uh, on the Hill. And then everyone got a copy of an AEI report like the day after the vote. And someone said, like, why didn't you give this to and give it to us ahead of time? And they were like, oh, well, you know, we wouldn't want to influence how you voted. And people are like, well, right. then why are we doing this? <laughs> if we aren't trying to you know, influence concrete outcomes, have impact, what are we doing? And so this is where, I mean, there have been different models of think tanks. And some people say there's the university without students model right. where you know, you're just the researcher and you just think great thoughts and you have your big ideas. And then there's also a, a, a model where the think tank is more of a do tank. 
right? And I, I once had a boss at Heritage that referred to Heritage as a do tank. And the idea is that we're trying to get stuff done. You know, we have ideas and we think about things, but at the service of, you know, concrete outcomes. What I like about EPPC is that it strikes me as the perfect blend of both of those things, right? It, it's the university without students where our scholars, you know, have time to do the deep research and the thinking that's necessary, but it's all at the service of some bottom line um, yeah. outcomes, right? We're trying to influence both the culture and public policy. And those things are related. Uh, it's important to point out. Yeah. And so it takes some time to do your homework, do the research, do the scholarship, but then it also takes time to do something with that knowledge, right? It's not just to puff yourself up. It's to equip people for the battles that need to be engaged. Yeah. Now you are inside the beltway and it showed when you just said AEI. Uh, you're talking about the American Enterprise Institute. And, and that raises a very interesting question because I began with Heritage intentionally. Um, but before Heritage was AEI and the, the American Enterprise Institute, funded by uh, big business largely originally, uh, was created as an alternative to the Brookings Institution. And, and, and so you had Brookings on the the left, but I'll, I'll say center left, uh, you know, very, very much in the center of, uh, of uh, democratic uh, uh, party life. And, and, and then you had a center right uh, think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. But I'm not sure it's fair to call it conservative at all anymore. Uh, I know that could be contentious, but uh, they have some conservative scholars. But AEI and Brookings, uh, they're, they're at least in similar territory now, right? Well, so we, I think that might be a little unfair to okay. AEI, um, and partly with the, the arrival of Yuval Levin in particular. Yep. Yep. I mean, and, and I wouldn't just say the arrival of Yuval, but um, AEI, if you look historically, yeah. that was the think tank where Michael Novak was a scholar. Absolutely. That was the think tank where Leon Cass was a scholar. Yes. That was a think tank where Irving Crystal was a scholar. Uh, Three heroic figures in the conservative intellectual life. And, and, and currently, Yuval, Yuval Levin is there. Yeah. Adam White is there. Yeah. Ramesh Panuru is there. Uh, Tim Carney's there. And so, yeah. I mean, I think you're right in saying the general center of gravity for the American Enterprise Institute was always yeah. on free enterprise. Right. Right? I mean, their right. bread and butter was much more free market capitalism, capitalism free trade, yeah. low yeah. taxes. Like that's what motivated their core of gravity, their center of gravity. Yeah. And that's going to be different than uh, an institution like Ethics and Public Policy Center. Right? What, what right. motivates us is going to be much more some of the ethical questions that lie at the right. heart of our politics. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're, we're in favor of markets. We defend private property. Yeah. Um, but that's not probably the existential questions for us. Those aren't yeah. the existential questions for us. Yeah. So I, uh, I meant to be provocative with that question. And, um, and I, I provoked what I was looking for there. And I think you make some very good points, by the way, I think Yuval Levine is one of the most important public intellectuals uh, in the United States today. I've done thinking yes. in public conversations with him and look forward to doing that again. Um, but it also points out the fact that many of these think tanks have, have different silos, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you've got kind of the cultural piece, you've, you, you've got the economic piece, uh, increasingly a foreign policy piece uh, and, and things like that. Uh, I, I, uh, I've had the, uh, the privilege of working with uh, several of these think tanks, including at times EPPC and, mm -hmm. uh, and also Heritage on events. I, uh, I've been a, a, a part of a lot of Heritage meetings and conferences. And uh, 
you know, I, I will tell you, it, it's it's reassuring to know that there are still places where ideas really matter. Mm. And I think that's important for Christians understanding this society in our times to understand that ideas don't just uh, don't just appear out of the ether. And policies certainly derive from those ideas do not. It, 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 takes, it takes nourishing ideas. It takes uh, honoring intellectual contribution. It takes a commitment to research and writing. And, and frankly, the conservative movement in the United States was not famous for that, partly mm. because it was the other side that was pushing all the policies. Uh, <laughs> it was the other side in the mid-20th century that was, uh, that was uh, pushing the ideas. Um, so this has been something of a, of a conservative response. I, I, think, I think that's right, is that if you look at um, the rise of especially the modern conservative movement, right, yeah, this yeah. was Bill Buckley, you know, standing athwart history yelling right. stop, right? It, it seemed as if um, during mid-century, early to mid-century, all of the force of momentum was with the progressives, right? right. You, you get uh, the New Deal, you get the Great Society, Buckley's standing athwart history yelling stop. But then you also get the Reagan revolution, right? right. And some of the ideas, the you know, you, you have Goldwater's campaign, you have the right. founding of National Review, you have the founding of the Her Heritage Foundation in 73, and then a decade later, right, these ideas are now coming to fruition. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're being, you know, advanced in policy. Now, we can then debate how successful, um, you know, the conservative movement has been. What have we conserved, right? I mean, I think that's right. a, a fair question. I, I I don't discount some of the critics who are saying, look, for all of the money, all of the energy, all of the mm -hmm. ideas, it seems like in 2021, we're actually worse off than we were in 1980s on, you know, especially many of the things that you and I care most yeah. about, but many of the yeah, cultural and, and moral questions. Yeah. And we're certainly uh, uh, going to be talking about those in this conversation. And uh, I wanted to kind of lay a foundation for getting there. Uh, and, and a part of that foundation is to, is to look at how think tanks and ideas operate, the centrality of ideas to a culture. And uh, this is something that conservatives have, have really always understood. Classical conservatism, going back to Burke, it was the preservation of ideas and structures, truths and virtues, uh, ways of life and, uh, and orders of living uh, without which human happiness wasn't going to take place. You know, human flourishing wasn't going to happen. And uh, Buckley, as you said, uh, uh, starting National Review to stand athwart history and 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 cry halt. Um, he admitted at times it wasn't really halt; it was slow down. <laughs> the effect of conservatism uh, has been to slow down radical social and moral change and uh, to ameliorate it. And uh, and Burke understood that. Uh, Burke understood that, for instance, in uh, in the French Revolution, passions had been set loose that were just not going to be extinguished, but they needed to be channeled in directions that would actually be helpful to humanity. Uh, so there's a sense in which you have 1980 to 2020. That 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 that's a lot of my adult lifespan right there. And uh, I'm not going to argue that things have gotten better morally. No, and and, and you know, and, and I have two thoughts. You know, just kind of. Yeah in reaction to what you just said there. And one is that when you look at how conservatives have um, invested in ideas, right. Um, especially think about social conservatives and theological right. conservatives, you know, we have good seminary programs and yours would obviously be an example of that. We have good legal training, you know, things uh -huh. like the Federalist society or Alliance defending freedom. Uh, we have lots of economics, right? There's all sorts of free market economists, Right. What we don't have is kind of the social conservative 
um, yeah. social science, social conservative philosophy, and public policy. Right there, there's not a pipeline producing, um, you know, that next generation of of scholar who's going to be doing some of the public policy work on social issues the way that we do have it for lawyers and we have it for economists. Um, and, and we have it for theological education, right? But we don't quite have it for the public policy implications of that. And so I think that's right. one area where, because we didn't make enough investments on the ideas, you know, we're seeing the consequence. The other is to say that while while ideas matter in this area, you know, Richard Weaver's right, ideas have consequences. Absolutely. I think we also are seeing, and we just saw this week in South Dakota, um, that we also need political muscle, yep. right? We had a good idea. We had a good piece of legislation. And then a governor caved to big business. And, and I think here is something that social conservatives in particular, you know, there's a club for growth. Right. And there's mm -hmm. the NRA. These are both large, well-funded political machines that right. if the governor of South Dakota betrayed them on Second Amendment rights right. or on a uh, on an economic agenda, they would come in and make their presence known. Yes. Social conservatives, we don't have a club for virtue. We don't have an NRA for the family. And, and I think that's why we saw Indiana RIFRA go the way right. it did. We saw the North Carolina bathroom bill. And, you know, luckily he stood up to the bullies, but, you know, the NBA right. and other. And now we saw South Dakota. He, he stood up mostly to the bullies. Right. It, he, did, he did the he, best he could, given yes. he. The, the I, Calvary wasn't coming. Right? That's I, I the acknowledge that. Uh, and, and I'll defend uh, the, the former governor and, and vice president. Uh, in the political context, but the reality is that it tells us very bad news about America that in a state like Indiana, uh, you could not get the same bill that passed unanimously in the House uh, yep. in 1993 uh, through the uh, Indiana legislature. But uh, you you actually hit something that's very very important to me here, um, and uh, as as we think about this, Ryan. Uh, I think there's a reason why there isn't a club for virtue. And I think it's because the people who are paying for the club for growth and uh, who are paying for, in, in, in many ways, uh, other think tanks on foreign policy or national policy, and especially supporting big business, they don't want to be associated with a club for virtue. Right. I mean, that, that's where we are right now. And so I've been a part for 40 years of, of trying to help bring together something like a club for virtue. And uh, we're sold out. Uh, by uh, by others uh, supposedly in the conservative movement. This is um, this is it's the biggest nut that I need to crack in terms of how do you persuade the socially conservative philanthropist yes. um, to invest that money wisely um, because you know diversifying between look I just all of the center right groups I'm going to yeah. help them all out a little bit you might actually be canceling out your own philanthropy because some of these groups Absolutely. are working at cross purposes. Yeah. And if my, my sense is that if it isn't explicitly uh, socially conservative, it's probably not going to be advancing our ball down the field five, 10, 15 years from now. Um, yeah. So you are, uh, think about that. You are making a point that is central to, uh, to my entire understanding of life and leadership, which is if you do not make these issues public up front, uh, you're not going to be faithful in whispering them behind closed doors either. And, uh, and, and that's where I think we're seeing a lot of the cleavage because the uh, historic conservative movement in the United States, if you go back to the 80s, was, was I think rightly described as a, as a fusion of, uh, of free market capitalists and, uh, and, and conservative libertarians and uh, conservative Christians, largely. And uh, 
the the problem is is that uh, many of us uh, among conservative Christians understood that the other two would elbow us out when it was convenient, and uh, so just to take the LGBTQ revolution, that's what we're feeling right now. I mean, there there are an awful lot of those in the uh, the other two legs of the stool, for example, for example, who, who just want to get past these issues. By the way, as if as if you could. I, oh, I think that's exactly right, and and I mean. Many of us who have unfortunately, you know, I've been in D.C. now for almost a decade, are acutely aware of how tenuous some of those coalitions are um, and how um, unrealistic or kind of uh, unrepresentative the D.C. uh, phenomenon is compared to the rest of the globe. There was that great scatter plot that came out Mm -hmm. in 2016 of Trump voters. And it had it on two axes, axes. One was uh, economic views and one was social views. And the D.C. quadrant, you know, the socially progressive, right. fiscally conservative was empty. There are no voters who actually agree yes. with the D.C. consultant class of fiscally conservative, socially liberal. All of the red dots were right. north of the equator, which meant they were socially conservative. And then they were more or less evenly spread between economically conservative and economically uh, liberal, which was to say that it's more or less a populist economic agenda That's right. with a socially conservative cultural agenda. Yeah. And we don't have enough intellectual leadership, yeah. you know, promoting that, embodying that. And and, yeah. and that's what I hope EPBC is going to be doing. That's what I hope uh, more of the organizations center right uh, will do, because that's where the voters are. And it's what accords with human nature and human flourishing. Like that, that sort of a policy yes. agenda is going to make us uh, it's going to make us flourish. Well, I'll, I can only say amen to that. And, and, and as a theologian, I have a theological answer for why that is so. Uh, and and you, I, I, I know the same scatter diagram you're talking about. And of course, it didn't surprise you. It didn't surprise me. Uh, and, and furthermore, when you talk about the economic issues, I'm going to argue that that's almost, it's not irrelevant, but it's more irrelevant than the, the, the Washington class would like to think. Uh, the primary issues motivating those voters are cultural and moral. And uh, no apologies for that. And the the economics are what seems to make most sense as the economics appear in a candidate reflecting their cultural concerns and their moral concerns. So, you, you know, it, it's not as if you have uh, the average and, and uh, you know, so let's just take the uh, the, the, the famous uh, study that was done about 2015 or so and, and updated, you know, uh, the Trump voters tended to uh, be very near a cracker barrel and the the. Uh, Obama voters and, and later Clinton and, and Biden voters tended to be closer to a Whole Foods. Well, the thing is that conservatives are not at Cracker Barrel trying to figure out exactly where they stand on tax policy. Uh, they, they are not at Cracker Barrel thinking primarily about their concerns about their grandchildren and free trade. I'm not saying those are not relevant issues, but that is not what they're thinking about. And I promise you that's true because I get to preach to them every Sunday. Oh, I think that's exactly right. Like, look, look most of us, when we think about our kids, mm-hmm. you know, I don't care if he's rich or if he's poor. I don't care if she's going to be, you know, um, uh, you know, a great entrepreneur or is just going to have an ordinary day job. Right? I mean, what most people want is that they don't want to see a return of bread lines and gas lines. And so long as, you know, we keep the economy basically going well, you know, yeah. most people don't have a dog in the fight of like how you micromanage it to get there. But what they care about is like, is my child going to be morally corrupted at school? 
Right. Is the government run public school system going to indoctrinate my kid? Is the broader culture like I want my children to grow up to be saints, right? I want my kids to grow up to love Jesus and then to live with him forever in heaven. And that's the existential question that's motivating. And on earth, you want your children, uh, you want your your son to grow up and marry a woman and have children. (laughs) And, you know, it's just normal things that have driven the entire human species uh, from, from Adam and Eve, those first concerns are cultural and moral because uh, that, that's where existence begins. That's where ontology begins. That's where Genesis begins. Uh, it's so I, I just want norms. to affirm that. I, mean, I, think, mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the pathway that we want is for our sons and our daughters to grow up, to be men and women, to then assume the responsibilities right. for a vocation, of being a husband or a wife to then be a mom or a dad. And yes, like there needs to be dignified work to help pay the bills, sure. but that's not where most people find the greatest joy in life. Most people find the greatest joy in life around the kitchen yeah. table, right? That's Playing right. wiffle ball in the backyard. It's family life, right? And that's then right. it's church life, right? And, and I think right. we speak a lot about economic life and we don't talk enough, think enough and um, craft policies around our family life and our religious life. And I think we need to get those back into the center of the discussion. I uh, had the honor of uh, meeting with President uh, George W. Bush uh, several times and being with him, uh, praying before he uh, spoke at a major event and praying with him uh, uh, in the aftermath of uh, of 9-11. And uh, so a great respect for President Bush. But when I think about the second administration of George W. Bush, I think about the fact that he said he wanted to channel the momentum of his election into Social Security reform. And I remember thinking, I, he's president, but I think this is the greatest missed opportunity in American history. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what's driving America is not they're waking up every morning worried about Social Security reform. Uh, they're worried about what kind of nation we're going to be. And... Uh, you know, uh, what we have not had are candidates, I think, who understand that from the Republican mainstream. And uh, I think the most interesting question for 2024 is whether someone will emerge along those lines. And I think you already see that with someone like Marco Rubio, someone like Tom Cotton, someone like Josh Hawley. Uh, I think all three of those uh, senators are self-consciously trying to rethink what does conservatism in the 2020s look like. And they're not rejecting what conservatism looked like in the 1980s, but they're saying that, you know, a living tradition develops, right? It's not kind of stagnant once and all in time and place, but that the challenges that we had to face in the 1980s are different than the challenges we have to face today. And so let's apply perennial principles to today's challenges and not treat the particular policies of the 80s as if those were our actual principles. I think yeah. that's the mistake is when we treat, you know, particular right. applications as if they're the foundational principles. Right. And, and uh, if you go back to the Social Security example, uh, President Bush didn't get his Social Security reform. And, and one of the reasons he didn't get it is that he thought people had elected him to do it. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that his own voters didn't care much about it. And that's not to say it wasn't important. I actually think his his reform proposals would have been very good for the nation and good for Social Security and good for human flourishing. Uh, but but it was it was a misreading of the political impulses. And uh, 
and and I think the conservative movement kind of writ large in, in Washington right now is following the same example uh, in the main. They they are looking for uh, explanations of what uh, conservative voters want, uh, while largely ignoring what conservative voters have been telling them that they want. Yeah. And, and you know, a, a good example of someone who seems to be getting this, and you know, I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. the three senators, here's a fourth senator, Mitt Romney. Yes. Uh, the Mitt Romney of 2021. Very different. Is very yeah. different than yeah. the Mitt Romney who said he was a severe conservative and, you know, 47% of America's were the takers, the makers and the takers. I mean, he's now, he's introduced the most generous federal plan uh, as a pro-family, pro-child tax uh, bill. Look, we can debate the intricacies and there's an interesting debate between Romney and Mike Lee's office and Romney right. and Marco the Rubio's state. office on this. And yeah. that's great, but yeah. it shows that Romney, right. Learned something from the past eight years and was saying, look, what, what people care about is, will it be affordable to have kids? Right. And what can policymakers do to make it more affordable to have kids? Well, and one of the things that's changed is that we have irrefutable evidence of a of a of a absence of births that actually does threaten American civilization. Yes, Th- this is where I think um Sometimes the the label of nationalism conjures yes. up, uh, you know, bad kind of images. But the basic idea is that every community has a common good. And there's right. the community known as your family, and there's a common good of your family. There's a community known as your church, there's a common good of your church. There's also a community known as your nation, and there's a common good of the nation. And so the, the, the thinkers who are gathering under the label of nationalists and right. nationalism, they're saying we got to be thinking about what's the common good of our nation, what policies promote yeah. that, and natalism is a part of that. If we sure don't have is. enough people, enough citizens, then the nation isn't going to flourish. And so right. I, I take all of these developments as signs of health that, you know, our side of the divide is willing to have these discussions, have these debates. Uh, and it, it, I think eventually it's going to get us to a better place because uh, I, I don't think, you know, just keeping where we so. are, I don't think that's the solution. No. And, uh, you know, there are debates about, for instance, whether or not policy A or B would have the desired results. I think everyone would agree. Every person of goodwill would agree. We want to have more babies. We want to have more healthy babies, more flourishing families. Uh, the, the question is how to get there. You raise an issue that we're not going to have time to unpack, but you dare to speak of the nation. And, and I do too. And, and theologically, I believe the nation is quite justified as a, as a unit in, in, in just a providential understanding of history. Uh, there's been far more peace in the world with the development of the nation state than there was before the development of the nation state. There's nothing in the Bible about the nation state, but there is about peoples and, and, and ethnicities. And I don't mean that just racially, but just, just, just understanding to whom you belong, what, 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 are, what, what, is the, what is our family that we're trying to build here? And, and by the way, we hope for other families also to be built up. There's nothing uh, theologically defined about the borders of the United States of America, but it turns out that declaring oneself a citizen of the world doesn't lead to human flourishing because it's, it's, it turns out that I think a biblical worldview affirms that it's concrete relationships that actually build human flourishing, not abstract. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is just how we have to think about this at all levels of our lives. Like, I'm a member of my family, 
But that doesn't mean that my family is better than your family. That doesn't mean that like, you know, I don't care about your family, but it means I prioritize my family's flourishing over your family's flourishing. It means I play a particular role in my family's flourishing that I don't play for your family's flourishing. It means that as I pursue my family's flourishing, I want to do it in ways that are compatible with your family's flourishing, but I'm certainly not going to prioritize feeding your kids before I feed my kids. I'm not going to tuck your kids into bed at night at all, but I am going to tuck my kids into bed. That's something that the nation state and just every political community, right? Because also I don't think it just needs to be nations. Like, your city, your state. Uh, I live in a village. You know, my, 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 my city is so small. It's classified as a village, not even yet a city. But right. those particular uh, connections matter. Right. We, we have a universal right. ethic that gets lived out with particularities, uh, particular relationships. And I think the tension between universality and particularity, you know, it's all throughout Christian theology. And, and it needs to be wrestled with that tension of you know, both right. the universal and the particular. But that identity comes down to matters of language and uh, and allegiance to certain laws and institutions, the recognition of legitimate government. So, for example, that you know, the, during the twentieth century, I mean, frankly, going back to the Enlightenment, but but in the twentieth century, there was this great hope for a more global sense of identity, and uh, and and the result of that is nobody's kids get tucked in at night. Uh, and so you you look at, for instance, the League of Nations and its failure, the United Nations, and and frankly, its farcical uh, 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 character. And uh, you look at the fact that uh, in the European Union now, which is supposed to be the just a European super state, it turns out that Polish people really do care about being Polish, and German people really do care about being German. And uh, and even right now in the COVID nineteen crisis and all the rest, uh, Angela Merkel, I think, has finally kind of figured out she's got to be responsible for the the people of Germany. And even on vaccine policy, uh, mm-hmm. in in a way that uh, that their own kind of uh, internationalist outlook said shouldn't be the concern. Yep, and you and you see this in the church even with you know if I'm the pastor of this church, these are yep. the people that I'm committed to, right? That's right. And there's still a universal church. I mean, we, we 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 definitely do have some disagreements about how we think about the universal church and ecclesiology, but we at least have enough agreement that there is a universal church and there are particular churches, and yes. the pastor's role is going to be to ministering to that particular flock. And that's not to somehow denigrate the other flocks. I mean, this is yes. where you know it's in our ecclesiology, it should also be in our political theology and our political philosophy. Yeah. I will simply say as a Baptist, uh, we could put it this way. We believe that there are churches beyond my church. Yes. Um, and uh, the EPPC, uh, you know, just just thinking about it, the, uh, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, you're Christian, but you're not confessional in, in, in the sense that you're not Protestant Catholic, although you, and you've had both involved. So you had prominent Roman Catholics involved. Uh, in the EPPC. You also had my friend and, and mentor, uh, Dr. Carl F.H. Henry, uh, mm-hmm. very much involved in the beginning with EPPC. And, uh, and it's public policy, but the first word's ethics. And, 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 you know, the more I think about it, Ryan, the more astounding that is to me. Ethics is the first word. And that was intentional. I mean, so mm-hmm. when EPPC was started, it was started right at the kind of um, 
right when Rawlsianism was probably getting its greatest stranglehold yeah. on our country, the idea that laws were supposed to be morally neutral, that you could only speak with public reason. That, no that, comprehensive theories. No comprehensive doctrines, none of that, right? And EPBC was like, no, every piece of legislation, every law embodies someone's worldview. It flows out of someone's morality. And the only question is going to be, is it true morality or false morality? But you're not right. going to get a morally neutral marriage law, right? The, the marriage right. laws that we have are either going to embody the truth about marriage or a falsehood. You're not going to have a morally neutral tax law or, or zoning law. Private property, that's a moral value, right? Everything, and, and, and this is where, you know, sometimes you have to remind a certain type of libertarian who thinks that you can have moral neutrality, that it's really an illusion. Try taking their property and their argument changes. Exactly. that They have a moral view. I mean, I think libertarians, it's a misguided moral view because they think liberty is the only moral value that matters for politics. I think there are lots of things that matter for politics. Liberty Absolutely. is one of them, but it's not the only one. And what EBPC is meant to do is really highlight those ethical concerns. In yeah. the previous decade, the, the, the major focus was on bioethics. Um, many right. of the um, George W. Bush uh, Council on Bioethics uh, mm -hmm. thinkers right. camped the White House and came to EBPC. Uh, and they had been students of Leon Cass. And you know this is where they kind of got their professional start in life. Um, the challenges today are a little bit different. You know, we're focusing a lot right now just because of the, the legislative calendar on the Equality Act. Right. And one of our fellows just last week testified. Uh, she, mm -hmm. you know, she was one of the two expert witnesses on our side of that issue. Um, and so I'm proud that, you know, have great colleagues who are willing to kind of um, speak out when it's unpopular. Like no one is making friends or, you know, getting rich off of opposition to the Equality Act, but it's the morally right thing to do. Then, I want to ask you a direct question here. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I have uh, I've been giving a lot of attention to the Equality Act for years because, after all, it was first articulated in 1973, and forms of it were very much a part of conversation uh, back right as uh, same-sex marriage was being uh, dealt with by the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and and so it was kind of like this was this was clearly understood to be the next thing. Yep. Uh, and uh, and coming down the line, um, but when it comes to something like the the uh, the Equality Act, it poses a direct threat to the existence of an organization like the Ethics and Public Policy Center. True, and for for that matter, to true be the blunt, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I mean, to be blunt, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm making it very clear about the existence of, of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Boys yeah. College and the Southern Baptist Convention in our churches. But I think there are a lot of conservatives who don't understand there. There, without this, there is no as currently constituted EPPC or uh, much of the program of the Heritage Foundation or the ability to have a Grove City College and Hillsdale College and uh, or, uh, you know, a uh, uh, well, you can just name any Baptist, uh, you know, evangelical university. It, 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 they just go away. But, but, but here's what's most remarkable about that. The way you just told the history was that, you know, when the Supreme Court was, quote, settling the, right. uh, the marriage issue on our behalf, um, the legislative uh, piece of, um, you know, the policy there was ENDA, the Employment yes. Non-Discrimination Act. And you know right. this history that originally all that the request was for was for employment non-discrimination. It was only, right. I think now five or six years ago that that was morphed into 
every title of the Civil Rights Act right. would now be amended, not just Title VII, the employment uh, non-discrimination part, but it would be Title II for public accommodations, Title VI for federal funding. And um, originally, it only included sexual orientation. Right. It was a dozen years ago that gender identity was added. That's right. And at the time, no one had any idea what gender identity meant. Right? Still, many right. Americans a decade ago had no idea what the T in LGBT stood for. And so, well, and it didn't stand for one word uh, because more than one T word was used within that community at the time. Yes. Yes. Did it mean transsexual and transgender? Transgender. No, exactly. And, And the reason I highlight this is to show how quickly the demands have evolved. Yeah. And And they're, they're not finished. (laughs) At all. Yeah. And, and the one caution here is that when you when you mentioned like, you know, it threatens the very existence of something like EBPC or the existence mm-hmm. of Boyce College in the Southern. As constituted. Um, it shouldn't therefore lead us as a response to say, oh, then what we need is some religious liberty exemptions to protect our institutions while the bad law gets imposed on everyone else. Right. I think that's a bad way of thinking about this. What we want to say is that the law itself is unjust. And it's not just unjust for you and me, not just unjust for your institution and my institution. It's unjust for everyone. And therefore, we have to defeat it whole hog. Right. I mean, that's absolutely. And that's why from the beginning, I've been opposed to the uh, fairness for all supposed uh, movements, because it really doesn't mean fairness for all. It means fairness for the people we are uh, we're in the room with negotiating. And it means the abrogation of religious liberty for everybody else. And 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 for that matter, not just I mean. Housing, public accommodations, outside, yeah. but then, you know, the yeah. sports, the medicine, right. uh, the private facilities. Um, and, you know, I've, I've formed friendships with some secular radical feminists who don't yeah. agree with you or me or anything else. But right. they agree with us that biology isn't bigotry and that a man who identifies as a woman isn't actually a woman right. and therefore shouldn't be in women's only spaces or women's only programs. And, and I think that's important. That, that's common grace, right? In our right. natural law, in my tradition, common grace in your tradition, and you don't need to have special revelation uh, to yeah. see that. And I think it's important for us to, you know, when we can make those partnerships, you know, let's do it yeah. without compromising other things. If we agreed yeah. to disagree about gay marriage and we're like, look, we're just not going to talk about gay marriage right now. We're going to talk about something else where we do agree. And I, I think that was, yeah. I think it's it's going to be um, important for our continued yeah. success in a pluralistic country that we can form those sorts of uh, relationships. Now, I just want to interject that uh, Protestants also believe in natural law. We're not going to define <laughs> it the same way that... Uh, that you are, but at the same time, don't uh, yeah, don't don't dismiss Protestant uh, concern with natural law. Yep, uh, and it is one, one of your professors and one, yes. one of my newest uh, fellows. Andrew's a a great expert on this. He's right. working on a new book manuscript on kind of a, a an evangelical uh, approach to natural law thinking, and um, I think that's a hugely important project. Yeah, uh, and I, I look forward to learning from Andrew and kind of you know some of the both evangelical ways in which he can embrace it and critique it as a yeah. intellectual tradition. So my first real theological wrestling with natural law in public came with one of the men who was very uh, involved in the founding of EPPC, which is Carl Henry. Yeah. And uh, we developed a, a paper together back in uh, the early 1990s on this. And, uh, you know, I, and, and neither one of us had had to do that before. It's interesting, you know, Dr. Henry was then in his 80s and, and uh, you know, it was it was, it was already um, something he had to deal with. I was 
just beginning uh, public life and ministry and, and really had to, to deal with it. But what we came up with is, as evangelical Protestants committed even to sola scriptura, of course, is that, uh, that the natural law can never be the ultimate authority for uh, Protestants, but it is a part of the creation order, and it is both illustrative of and prior to politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is illustrative of God's creative intention, and it, it's pre-political and uh, and accessible to all. And uh, so, again, we could we could yeah. differ about that, but it it turns out it's very very important. But it also turns out that it gets you in trouble. And I'm talking to the man who right now is probably in more trouble over this than than anyone else on the planet. So I want to turn to that. Uh, hmm. Your latest book is not available at uh, Amazon.com. Just uh, tell us the story. Sure. I mean, so, you know, when, when the book came out, you were very nice. You had me on the show. We talked right. about uh, the book titled When Harry Became Sally. It, it was meant to kind of show how quickly our culture had changed mm-hmm. from when Harry met Sally, the big cultural right. question where men and women are so different. Can they just be friends? Right. The day men and women, it's a fluid concept and it's a spectrum and you could be somewhere. Like It, it just shows you how quickly in the cultural discussion right. Uh, we went from taking sex differences seriously to almost denying that they exist, right? Gender right. is now the term and it's a spectrum and it's fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, the book came out three years ago. Amazon happily sold the book for three years. Uh, once President Trump was no longer in office, once Attorney General Barr was no longer the AG, once Josh Hawley was no longer in a Senate majority, on a Sunday afternoon about a month ago, the book just disappeared. Uh, and it was the Sunday before mm. the House of Representatives was scheduled to vote on the Equality Act. Mm. Um, you know, the book, the, the, there's a large chapter in the book discussing the Equality Act and the problems with it. I'm probably one of the more outspoken critics of the Equality Act. So the timing is hugely suspicious. Uh, the timing, both the weekend before the vote, the timing of why only now do they claim the book violates their content policy. It didn't violate their content policy for three years. And then Amazon is not just like the mom and pop bookstore down the street. Amazon controls something like 70% That's of right. all new adult book sales, 80% of all ebook sales. They are the market. Um, and so what this means, it's not just, you know, how will it impact my personal book sales or my professional reputation? I think clearly part of this is meant to damage my professional reputation. But I think, think about this as an ecosystem. Think about this as a system. Right. What future young scholar right. is going to say, I'm going to write a book if they're afraid that they're going to run afoul of the Amazon censor? What future right. publisher is going to take a risk publishing that book, especially if they aren't prominent enough to get the type of media attention right. um, that I've, you know, that I was fortunate to get because other people's books are going to be canceled and you and I will never even hear about right. it. And then other people just won't write books in the first place. Other publishers won't no, that's publish. How, that's how cultural coercion works. And, yes. uh, and, and it's, it's not accidental. People know what they're doing. And I don't like the phrase cancel culture because it, uh, it's just used whenever someone disagrees these days, but we're actually talking about the disappearance of books. We're talking about the absence of arguments. We're talking about the subversion of discourse. And, uh, and, and, and your book is not the first probably, but it's the first to, to uh, be uh, this prominent uh, because frankly of your role and, 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 and the book having influence over the last three years. Uh, Amazon's articulated a new policy sure. uh, that uh, no one, they're not gonna publish any materials 
in which uh, there is the claim that uh, anything covered by LGBTQ is somehow the result of mental illness. So it raises a host of questions with me, like, uh, what about Freud? Uh, because as, as I recall, uh, Sigmund Freud, though uh, acknowledging something like a, a homosexual sexual orientation and making, making statements that, you know, normalize it to some sense, he also spoke of it as a psych- psychological inversion. Um, you know, when he tried to explain it, I mean, I don't know where this goes. I mean, your, your average liberal of the 1980s was making similar kinds of arguments. I don't know if their books are going to disappear as well. Yeah, so so the the the, the Amazon mm-hmm. lawyer who wrote that letter uh-huh. that went to the four senators um, who, who had asked questions about this, the exact phrase was, you know, we now have a policy where we don't sell books that, quote, frame LGBTQ identities uh-huh. as mental illnesses. And there's just a couple of things to say there. Uh, one is that um, the book never frames the identity as a mental illness, yes. right? So, so it, it does talk about gender dysphoria, which is a psychiatric condition, mm-hmm. according to the most recent edition of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, right. right? So the DSM-5, which Amazon sells, lists gender dysphoria as one of the diagnoses there. Um, so, but, but again, it doesn't talk about LGBTQ identities. They used that phrase intentionally, Amazon did thing is it says mental illnesses. I never use that phrase in my own voice. The book, it shows up once when I'm quoting uh, the former psychiatrist in chief at Johns Hopkins. And the reason I don't use that phrase myself is because of the way that I do frame it. I frame gender dysphoria as being similar to other dysphorias, such as anorexia. And I think all of us would agree that a high school girl with anorexia has nothing wrong with her body. And so she doesn't need liposuction. But I also think all of us would agree that we wouldn't refer to that high school girl as mentally ill because there's a certain stigma and pathologizing, you know, around the concept of mental illness. And so we wouldn't refer to her as like, you know, she's mentally ill, which is why I don't do it on gender dysphoria. And so they've, they've, they've actually, you know, they've libeled me in two senses, right? Saying that I frame the book as one of mental illness and it's about the identity of the person, not the actual psychiatric condition. Um, and I think this is going to have huge uh, consequences right. for them. What I mean by that is that w- what they've done here is they've they've uh, intentionally misrepresented the nature of the book because they know that for someone who knows nothing about me and nothing about the book, they're going to think, oh, this is a bomb throwing red meat book. He's calling gay people crazy. Right. Which is the way that, you know, the critics that you and I share try to des- describe us. Now we have a vice president of, of Amazon repeating that smear in a letter to four senators, right? I mean, that's, we shouldn't be um, uh, uh, pretending we don't see what's really going on. What they're really doing right. here is trying to p- present the book as if it's some, you know, right-wing nut job bomb throwing book. Um, so anyway, we're not, in the not, process not, of- Not that, by the way, online booksellers don't sell those. Right. You know? I mean, but there's also, there's no consistency here. I mean, like this is yeah. where we should also realize that like, this was intentional targeted- to try to kneecap someone the week before a major vote. Um, so where does this go from here? Or, or do you talk about that or do you know? Uh, I don't know where it's going to go from here. I do know that uh, just last week, um, the attorney general in Indiana sent a letter to Amazon opening an inquiry, you know, requesting some information 
Um, a couple of days before that, some members of the House of Representatives had sent a letter. So now there's a Senate letter, there's a House letter, there's a state AG letter. Um, you know, I'm considering um, legal action in a personal capacity, and you know that's still being worked out. So I can't fully tell you where it goes from here, um, but I'm yeah. exploring all the options. So I, I actually, I think it's really important, not just for me personally, but for conservatives as we wrestle with big tech, right. um, that we push back on these things. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, as you're as you're talking about this, about the fact that uh, if you do look at the conservative movement in the United States in the, the last half of the 20th century, you had uh, someone like William F. Buckley Jr. who said, look, uh, our arguments are not going to be published in The New Yorker or Harper's or Atlantic. So instead, we're going to start a magazine and uh, National Reviews, it became... And and it will have equal access to the males as those others. Mm-hmm. And and that was a very important principle. So people could subscribe to National Review the same way they subscribe to, uh, you know, The New Yorker or The Nation, uh, you know, even further on the left or anything like that. Uh, that's what's being threatened now. There's, there, there, there is no access for conservative ideas um, that is protected and respected as it, it should be in a free society. Yeah, so... Um- Two, two thoughts there is that one is that um, in the 1980s, someone like Buckley could say that, you know, the biggest threat to our liberty was big government. Right. I think in the 2020s, we need to see that both big government and big tech, big business, yeah. big tech can threaten it. And then the second thought is that, you know, you, you mentioned that, um, you know, Buckley could start a magazine and he knew that a common carrier, the U.S. Postal Service, right. would deliver his magazine. We're now seeing something that strikes me as the inter- it's at the intersection of antitrust law and monopoly law, sure. um, common carrier, public utility law, and then maybe non-discrimination law. And what Twitter, Facebook, Google, Amazon, it strikes me that they're right at the intersection. They, they don't perfectly fit in either of those buckets, but they're kind of right where the three buckets meet. And we have to think about you know, what would it mean if uh, your internet service provider said, oh, you're a conservative Southern Baptist. We don't provide you with internet access anymore. You know, how, what does that mean for your podcast, for your daily radio show, for all the, we need or, th- or just uh, the average Christian in business or in school. Yeah. Yeah. If the banks, yeah. I mean, there's certain banks that have told right. certain nonprofits, we won't let you have checking accounts here any longer. I think conservatives need to recognize that there's a threat to our freedom, our liberty and our flourishing that comes from big government and from woke capitalism. And yep. we need to um, think through what the proper legal response is. That's right. And uh, when you mentioned big government, and you're exactly right, historically, that was the big concern uh, and, and fear of conservatives. Now you're looking at big tech. Uh, I mean, uh, I guess you could say that uh, Huxley and Orwell and uh, Jacques Ellul and, and others certainly saw this coming when, when others did not. But it's interesting right now to ask, uh, just take big tech and big, and big government. Which one's more afraid of the other right now? Uh, I think in a lot of ways, big government's more afraid of big tech uh, than big tech is of big government. And I think you you might have seen that earlier this week in South Dakota. Yep. So much to talk about. I am so thankful that you're the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Ryan Anderson. We've uh, had many conversations in the past. I look forward to many in the future. I... uh, I pray for and look for good things from EPPC under your leadership. I'm thankful for it. Thank you. I appreciate uh, your support and this conversation.
Many thanks to my guest, Ryan Anderson, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to spts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. And until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.